This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. The more that we're in a talent crunch, the more companies have to think differently about sourcing. The more they're thinking differently about sourcing, they're thinking more expansively about not just, oh, do you have the degree? Or what schools did you come from? They are looking for opportunities to say, this person could conceivably develop these skills. This person could conceivably do this. Okay, we can, we can take some bets here. That's McKinsey senior partner, Bill Shanninger. He joins me and McKinsey partner, Anu Madgavkar, to talk about human capital and how our work-life experience is more valuable than a college degree. Before we get into that, The war in Ukraine is driving up food prices across the globe. McKinsey partner Joshua Katz is here to tell us what we can do about it. So a few months ago on this show, we talked about how the war in Ukraine was increasing the risk of a global food crisis. Josh, what's the latest on that? Has that come to pass? We are still in the midst of a food crisis uh, that will have multi-year implications, and we need to be aware of that. That being said, from where we were a few months ago to where we are today, some of the indicators have gotten better. Uh, And specifically, where that shows up is in grain prices, which is a signal from the market to say, how dire and how short are we going to be? Back from February, there was a point at which wheat prices were up about 60%. And now they've come down to about 20% up from where they were in February. Uh, And in corn, they were up about 30% at one point, and now they're up about 20%. Now, that's not to say we're out of the woods by any means, but at least it is a a bit of a more positive uh, outlook where food prices have landed and therefore how many people will be able to afford their food. Now, I'm still quite concerned of where we'll be in the next several months, especially for countries that are reliant on food aid or for countries where, frankly, the many, many millions of people are going to face a financial crisis that's caused by the rise in food prices. That is absolutely still ahead of us. And it is absolutely still ahead of us that farming is going to be challenged in parts of the world for the next several years, particularly as fertilizer prices are likely to remain high. And so let's also remember that the inflation issue certainly predated uh, the Ukraine-Russia crisis. Right. Uh, if we looked at food inflation, I, I just looked at the U.S. numbers the other day. We were up in Q3 and Q4 of last year, uh, quite significantly in food and the beverage category. And that did accelerate through the crisis, but we already were at levels uh, that we hadn't seen in probably a decade in those quarters. What do we know about how how the trend is, uh, is unfolding globally? Yeah, un- unfortunately, this is one where uh, the countries that are already feeling feeling food crises, it exacerbates them. So it and as it's an it's an affordability issue, right? In poorer countries, more of the, the wallet and the income that folks earn goes into food. And so when food prices go up significantly, uh, it's an even bigger squeeze on them than it would be otherwise. Now, that's not to say that this won't be challenging for many in a, across the globe, but I think on a, on a sheer numbers basis and the extremes of uh, the pain that's felt, this this will fall disproportionately, unfortunately, on countries where they have significant ties to the population that are already struggling. 
what we understand is that in Ukraine, their estimates at point to something like 8 million acres of arable land has been lost through the conflict and potentially more because of shells that remain in fields, which means we'll have a, a shortage of what comes from Ukraine in the next few years. How can leaders respond or how are they already responding to these shocks? I mean, in the very short term, we need to make sure that the grain that exists and has been harvested can get to the market. So that means, frankly, finding creative ways to make sure that the grain that's in Ukraine gets out. Uh, And we're seeing, I would say, remarkable progress on that, despite the ports being uh, quite restricted. I think some of the reason why the crop prices have come down is people have noticed, frankly, the creativity of people and getting the grain out of the country. The other thing to help in the short term is several countries, I think about 20, have imposed some form of trade or export restrictions. And what that does is it takes some flexibility out of the system. And so in the short term, those those add challenges to moving grain around the world as we need to. And so we'll see if some of those come off to help the system more broadly. As we look past this season, what we're going to have to figure out is how to make up for what's going to be missing from a more average production in Ukraine. And by the way, we should recognize that the agriculture system is quite impressive in that almost every year there's some form of a shock. It's a drought in one place. It's, you know, another challenge to production. So the system itself has historically become, I would say, better at managing the fact that there, there are parts of the world that have challenges. And frankly, trade has been a big part of that. There are some concrete measures that I think we can look at in in the medium term of what we need to think about. So are we incentivizing uh, the right crops and and foodstuff crops that we need to? How are we actually using our conservation programs? Mm -hmm. How are we thinking about biofuels as part of the agricultural system? And then in the long term, what, what kind of resiliencies are we looking at? I think some of the opportunity here is to look for productivity in an even broader set of crops. If we think about adding resilience to the system Mm -hmm. or just adding supply, having better varieties and better technologies across a a broad set of crops, including wheat, by the way, Mm -hmm. would make, I think, a significant difference here. How hard is it to get people to move away from sort of the small set of crops or the parameters that they're working under now? People have been looking at technologies that apply broadly across crops more easily, uh, which almost inherently helps add potential to other crops. So I think it is happening naturally, and, and the nature of the technologies um, that that are on the horizon or frankly the near term and just need to be commercialized will help with that. So I'm optimistic about where we can get to here. Uh, it, it'll also take farmer education, right, Because our, and farmer incentives because Farmers have, are, you know, the best of the world in managing their land and their balance sheet, which is associated with their land. And so asking them or showing them that they, they should do something differently uh, is a very high bar. I mean, if, if essentially you're betting your income every year on how you farm and what you farm, uh, I certainly want to be very convinced that what you're asking me to do differently uh, is going to work. And, and I think that's part of the challenge is these are, these are slow moving changes uh, with good reason as to why it can be slow moving. So will the farming industry need to pull in non-traditional sources of talent? In in the developing world, it's unclear 
how folks will view the opportunity on the farm versus in urban areas. On the one hand, on the farm is becoming increasingly exciting as technology arrives uh, and opportunity distributes because of the, of connectivity. But on the other hand, we're still at a point in most of the developing world where urbanization is a, is a primary driver of where people choose to live and where they choose to work. And so we'll, we'll have that tension to sort through. Thinking about the next potential crisis, how can stakeholders be better prepared? There are a number of inherent challenges in the agricultural system to creating resiliency, which while I think we've addressed many of them, the system will, have, will continue to evolve. So, I mean, first of all, a number of our key inputs, as we've learned in this crisis, are concentrated in few places around the world. In this case, it's a potash question more than anything else. Uh, and so we have to recognize that and know how we manage that. We also have moved towards relatively concentrated production of certain grains. So in this case, the scramble has been around sunflower and wheat primarily. There are other crops, of course, in, in Ukraine and Russia that uh, are challenged, but those those in particular and how people have had to manage that is the second. The other is, as you get further down the value chain and we get into processing, there are elements that are relatively concentrated. I, I, people probably don't consider the baby food crisis part of an agricultural element, but I think it's a, a decent analogy here, right? We had one plant go down, which caused an entire crisis across the United States. So there are uh, vulnerabilities associated with the concentration at, at certain steps of the value chain. And then the other thing, which we haven't talked about, is th the twin climate and nature crises. Right. We, we are going to see more frequent droughts in m lots of parts in the world. We're going to face risks from biodiversity or water shortages. And, and those we haven't, I'm not sure we've fully recognized how severe those are. That means that the overall system has to be more resilient because we're going to face different types of crises uh, with more frequency. You've listed a number of challenges. What can um, key stakeholders do next? What do leaders need to do next? Well, first, I, I'm optimistic about the innovation that's coming to this space and has been for the last several years. It, we, we've moved from a relatively small set of incredible innovators to a relatively broad set of incredible innovators that, by the way, bring ideas from a whole host of industries to agriculture, which has been very exciting. Uh, and I think the net result of that is we will become less reliant on a particular region or a particular type of input or a particular crop or even, frankly, protein source. So we have so much innovation occurring that as it improves productivity and improves diversity and allows us to grow in different grow food in different ways will help us quite a bit. A more resilient system should also have a longer term view of our soil and our water and our land that we're utilizing to produce the grain. And so part of that resilience is going to be investing in ensuring we have healthy soil and sufficient water and sufficient biodiversity such that we are not trying to correct immediate problems, but we've built up effectively an agricultural balance sheet of the planet that works well for us for the next several generations. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you. 
And now, a quick break to let you know about a special two-part episode of Inside the Strategy Room, a podcast that recently featured James Gorman, the chair and CEO of Morgan Stanley. Check out Inside the Strategy Room wherever you listen to your podcasts. So we just heard about some complex problems, and in order to solve them, we're going to need help from people with a range of experiences, which is exactly what Bill Shaninger and Anu Madgavkar are here to discuss. Anu and Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Lucia. Great to be here. Let's start with some context. Your research grapples with human capital which as a term of art risks feeling a bit mechanical and dehumanizing. Bill, what is at the heart of human capital? So for us, human capital writ large, knowledge, skills, attributes, experiences, and health. We added on to the end of that, which we thought was really important, was health. And the reason health got added in, because we were looking at this across multiple countries, across a broad range, was are you healthy enough to even deliver those first four things that I was talking about? And Anu, human capital must be a tremendous source of value, not just for organizations and for economies, but for individuals. What did the research reveal about how we as individuals accumulate human capital throughout our working lives? So human capital is really the potential of human beings to be productive. What we found is that this process of accumulation happens throughout life. It starts in early childhood. Uh, there are a huge amount of human capital abilities that accumulate through education. But then through the stage of work experience, human capital accumulates because people learn to do new things. They acquire new skills. They find new ways to deploy those skills. And if you think about the average person in the workforce, almost half of their lifetime earnings would be attributable to the skills that they've acquired through work experience. So human capital is intimately, therefore, connected with the whole experience of being in the workforce, working with other people. And then one of the most surprising things we found that it's very closely related to change and dynamism and the whole process of mobility, moving to new roles and performing new tasks and learning new skills. Right. So say more about that, right? Because right now we are in the throes of a very tight labor market, very high churn, as we know from our great attrition, great attraction research, as well as BLS data and, and other stats. Did we learn anything new or surprising in this research about why folks are changing jobs? Well, we found that change is a feature of the labor market and it precedes the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation is, is an important sort of underscore or exclamation point on this process. But when we looked at the work histories of roughly 4 million workers across multiple countries, we found that on average, people change their roles every two to four years. That 80% of those role moves are actually between organizations. So people actually leave their current organization and move to something else. And that's basically because in the process of change, people find that they can perform new roles and learn new skills. And our Research around the great attrition and great attraction, this employee surveys, would also suggest that career development is an important but less well understood motivation for why people are quitting even now. They do want to advance. Companies can create new opportunities, new roles, 
just by saying, okay, what skills does a person have, having the extension. The essence of this was that somewhere someone is going to take advantage of the skills the person already has. And then that those skills can be grown upon over time through these experiences. Why wouldn't the organization who currently has them as an employee be looking to do that? So where it ties in with great attrition, great attraction is there's a real opportunity here for the organization to say, no, 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 we value this. We want to be an academy company. We want you to continue acquiring and growing on your skills. So gaining work experience is instrumental to growing our human capital and mobility is vital to gaining work experience. What do we know about the folks who are changing jobs in the ways that most positively affect their human capital? We found that roughly a third of workers in each of the countries we'd looked at had very successful upwardly mobile career trajectories. So one or two or even three income brackets higher. And those who did that were those who pursued mobility, but with stretch roles and stretch skills. So they moved into jobs and roles which were adjacent, but still represented maybe up to 40% non-overlapping new and different skills that they hadn't actually deployed or exercised in their previous role. So we call that boldness of moves, and it's the boldness of role moves that's a really important part of this story of possibility and how can you enable more workers to break out of what they might have thought was their destiny simply because of the level of education that they had. It doesn't have to be the case. You can defy the odds if you yourself, as well as your employer, uh, encourage you to make those bold moves. The cohorts who leave that for later or don't do it at all have a very different path and trajectory. So you can think about you know, the, how the experiences of individuals vary based on their openness to doing this early on in their career versus later, and then more frequently versus not at all. But the willingness of people to try that, and I do think there's a personality component here, which is underlying, which is in personality terms, openness to experience. You know, there are people who shrink from this sort of what we were calling bold moves because they'll recognize what they've done previously and what's coming in front of them. And it might just appear a little risky. So there's personal choice and personal qualities and risk-taking abilities that influence this. But equally, one of the things we found was that the organizational context matters and that some organizations are just better at unlocking these possibilities for workers. And we did this in a way that actually measured how companies invest in training, how much they invest in training, how much they focus on internal role mobility to open up opportunities for their workers within their own companies, and then how good they are in building overall organizational health and a, and a positive culture. And we found through these work histories that people who'd had the experience and the exposure to high-performing organizations early on in their career were actually more likely to be able to be upwardly mobile and to take advantage of those opportunities. So the onus is on individuals, but equally the onus is on employers to create the conditions that help and enable the whole process of learning through work experience. Could you give us a really clear example of the difference experience and bold moves might make for folks who begin their career at roughly the same starting point? So take the story of two folks who joined architects firms, for example. So both come in with a certain set of trainings and credential based on their education. But one person joins 
a firm where work processes are quite traditional. You do good work, but you don't really have an opportunity to learn, uh, for example, how to use new digital tools in the process of architecture. Whereas the other person moves into a more tech-savvy firm where some of those new tools and techniques are put to work and that person learns those skills. And then the second person also may have opportunities to get involved in client development and learns the sort of front end of what it means to be successful. How do you actually sell your services to clients potentially by accompanying a senior partner and going with them on a client call? And that sets up the second person to then move on and take on positions of greater responsibility where both the new tools and techniques as well as the softer skills that they've acquired are put to work. How are we taking the measure of an individual's human capital? We've estimated lifetime earnings for individuals based on their past work history and then the current occupation they're in and looking at salary growth data across national statistics as well and mapping that back. But crucially, and perhaps for the first time, we've come up with a methodology to allocate or attribute earnings to the skills that are actually put to work in each role and each job that the person plays. So we're able to bifurcate the skills then into how much of your earnings came because of entry-level skills that you had when you entered the workforce versus how much did you actually start earning because of new skills you acquired while at work. It was a fascinating breakdown of the data when you just look at what was contributed by each and what was new. I mean, Lucia, as you were asking that question, you know, sometimes people ask us, well, is human capital compensation? No, 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 no. Compensation is the marker of what the market wants to pay for it and how it's realized over time. All things being equal, most folks would obviously choose to work for organizations that are talent incubators. Is it realistic to suggest that particular path or does something need to change in order for more folks to have access to those talent incubators and for this to have positive impact at scale. I mean, as you were asking the question, I was thinking like, well, we're smack in the middle of the equitable access question there. Companies that are run better do better on this, right? Here's what's really interesting is the more, and the environment we're in has made this really exacerbated. The more that we're in a talent crunch, the more companies have to think differently about sourcing. The more they're thinking differently about sourcing, they're thinking more expansively about not just, oh, do you have the degree or what schools did you come from? They are looking for opportunities to say, this person could conceivably develop these skills. This person could conceivably do this. Okay, we we can take some bets here. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity in terms of the equitable access part because organizations perhaps backed into a corner, but perhaps just to add their own orientation saying, we're going to give a broader aperture here and make it more available. I think there's a real tailwind now in terms of this shift that organizations are making or need to view people in terms of their potential and not just typecast them into what you think they're capable of because of what they're currently doing. And that tailwind is because of the labor market tension at the moment where you know quit rates are high, vacancy rates are high, and companies are desperate, as Bill said. I think the other really interesting thing that we found was that there were a lot of mid-sized and smaller companies in our data set that actually were good at doing this. And size, therefore, is not sort of the only predictor of how good a company will be for your career. It's not transparent to employees who are looking around and thinking about their career moves as to what role your prospective employer can actually play for you. And the more companies are more transparent about 
how they're doing this well and what sorts of outcomes they're able to deliver to people, clearly the better it is because I think the matching process would be just better with more information. As Anu was answering, I was thinking about the person standing online at the Starbucks who says, I'm going to pay for the next three people behind me. You know, and the sort of the classic pay it forward kind of thing. There is something here for organizations and individual managers to get comfortable with the idea that they're going to support employees taking on different roles, either within an organization or outside the organization. Comfort in knowing that excellent people always have excellent opportunities. But if you're viewed as a facilitator of that, you will have more people knocking on the front door and then more people looking for those opportunities. It becomes a virtuous cycle. I mean, the classic idea of an academy company. So I do think the role of the organization here and individual leaders is not to covet and control talent, but to acquire it and develop it and make it as brilliant and shiny as possible and know that a good number of them are going to leave. And that will just keep it going. That mindset, I think, is a pretty big deal, particularly in a time of scarcity, when you would think the opposite would be true. They'd want to hold on and not let anybody go. And I think that would be the mistake. So I love the idea that we had these smaller companies in there that we look at and say, there's a mindset here around the brilliance of the individual and helping develop it and hone it and make them shine as bright as they possibly can and keep that going. Bill, I think what you're saying is that employers become talent magnets when they are also talent accelerators, right? But to Anu's point about smaller companies, it feels like becoming an academy company requires access to a lot of resources. How does this work, Anu, in the context of startups or smaller brands, as you mentioned? Well, there's all kinds of talent acceleration that's possible. And we find that some of the most effective ways to accelerate talent is the sort of learning through coaching and apprenticeship on the job. And smaller companies that may not be able to invest in a lot of more structured learning opportunities can still deliver a lot of hands-on, on-the-job training. And the fact that many of these might be quite flat in terms of organizational layers means that people in teams get the opportunity to work with, you know, very talented and more experienced individuals in a very real-time, hands-on, personalized way. And that's an unparalleled learning experience. So I would argue, in fact, that for larger organizations, part of the magic they have to create is how do you marry some of the structured learning with that feeling of working in a really flat, small team where you learn dynamically by working closely with very talented and more experienced individuals. Suppose I'm a leader, I'm operating in this super tight labor market. What are some concrete steps that I can take to become a talent magnet and better increase the value of the human capital in my organization? You know, I think one of the important things for them to do is have a good handle just on the skills that your current employees possess, what their potential might really be, actually invest in it. You know, sometimes I think we pigeonhole people. So I think one is being a little more expansive in your thinking about what that person's potential and capacity actually is. That would be one. I think the second thing is thinking about who you can attract up front and who you'd hire might also need a similar push on expansiveness. If you think, again, Lucia, we were talking about the equitable access. Think about in you know professional services and consulting when we used to think you had to have an MBA. Less than half the people for us have MBAs now. And one of the things to do there was just hire clever people and we'll do our own mini MBA just to give them the basics, right? Where you know you create that one bit up front that the person needs just as a jumping off point. We'll trust on things like apprenticeship and mentorship and training on the job. Not everyone's going to make it. 
but a lot will, and some are going to really thrive. And I think there's just a, a way that you make it part of everyone's daily life that they see people changing jobs internally on a regularly rapid basis. You shouldn't have someone in a role for 10, 12, 15 years. I think that's kind of that's counter to what we're talking about. And then I, maybe the last thing, the thing that we keep talking over, like mentorship, apprenticeship, and coaching. So the quality of those people providing the apprenticeship, the coaching, and the mentorship matters massively. So the organization's thinking about who they put in those roles, not in controlling activity, but in growing the next generation of employees and growing the next generation of leaders. What did the research show about geographic variation? Did the value of experience differ by country? The value of experience did differ by country. We studied four countries in depth, three more advanced economies, the US, the UK, and Germany, where the value of experience was between 40 and 45% of lifetime earnings, so roughly half. But we also studied a developing economy, India, where the value of experience was almost 60%. It was higher than in the other countries. And we believe that that's really because the value of experience is greater for workers who have lower levels of educational attainment because most of what they learn then is on the job and their prospects depend on what they learn on the job. So that structural difference between these two kinds of countries does explain a lot of that variation in the value of experience. It can be difficult for companies just to create an inventory of current skills, right? So how as a leader might you illuminate otherwise latent potential among your staff? One of the obvious ones is just remember all the way back at the beginning, how did we measure it? Knowledge, skills, attributes, experiences. Sometimes the best thing you can do is really challenge how many of those are actually necessary. You don't want to anchor in bias and say, oh, it has to come from an Ivy League school. It has to come for engineering, right? In which case you'll get a significantly disproportionate number of white men with STEM degrees. So, you know, some of it is what really mattered. Well, actually, we could have people with MFAs. We could have people with all sorts of degrees, but they're clever and they're passionate and they want to bring it. Oh, they would work here too. So being far, far more thoughtful about what you actually need, particularly on the knowledge front, which is degrees. It's a barrier to entry for people to get in. Architect, accountant, doctor, all those things where you have to have both a degree and a license had made it historically difficult to get into those. What we're suggesting is, even in the absence of that, a lot of employers can find and go beyond the usual suspects and then have real potential. I think that if you start with this notion of really understanding what your workers or your employees are capable of. Most people have a clear sense of what roles people perform, but it's not granular in terms of what skills they might possess. And there isn't much visibility into what else people might do outside of their day job, the kinds of initiatives or task forces or contributions that they're making outside even of their formal role. And then we see some encouraging examples where on top of understanding what skills you may be capable of, there's offering career counseling advice or support to your employees to help you say, okay, here's what you do today, but this is perhaps what you could think about doing going forward. So being very proactive about that is the other competence or muscle that some companies are starting to build. On this point of staying committed in times of scarcity, I mean, it's tough for managers. Hiring is risky. It's imprecise. So managers must be loath to introduce even greater mobility into the mix. And if that's right, 
What should companies be thinking about in terms of changing incentives? How should companies help managers navigate that? I think you have to stay the course. I think literally it's the only way it works is to stay the course. As soon as you start thinking about you, how am I going to hit my numbers? How is my unit going to hit its numbers? As soon as you start optimizing for you, you're no longer optimizing for the enterprise of the people and it, it will show. When I used to do the, the residential psychiatric treatment center, I really liked the idea that my assistant, you know, after like nine months was going to be pulled and go run the next unit. Now, I had peers who were like, why do you keep liking your people being promoted? I go, why do you? That is saying that A, I'm better and B, people want to come to my unit. I mean, it was like, you could say it was altruistic where it could be, I wanted to be known as the person who grew supervisors. I do think this is as much a mindset for leaders as anything else. I want to be the finishing school. I want to be the person who grows and unlocks new opportunities. I think we have to embed that, right? The idea that talent is going to come in and talent is going to go out. And ideally, when they go out, they're a whole lot better and have more opportunities. Nevertheless, if your best employees are routinely leaving, learning and development becomes not just more vital, but much more capacity intensive for managers, right? Like how does this increased focus on development change the manager's portfolio and what needs to happen there to enable it? You could argue they should do their job. If you were to think about where their time should be spent, is it best spent on feeding the machine, on bureaucracy, on administrivia, you know, on presiding, or should it be understanding with the talent they have and providing real apprenticeship, mentorship, and coaching? I would argue this just forces the hand of the leaders into focusing their time on what really matters. We spoke on one of the episodes of McKinsey Talks Talent about talent marketplace platforms. Would an internal talent marketplace be helpful here? I would think so. I think I'd say an unequivocal yes. At the core of the marketplace, Lucia, is this idea of match, right? How much do you match You know the new skills and what can you be expected? And then filling in the gap is what you get from the experience of doing the role and or coming from your colleagues and the leader. I think it's a really big part of addressing the information asymmetry we talked about, at least within a company. You know, people don't look out of their own teams or don't look further because they just don't know. And a talent marketplace can help both ways. It can help workers discover new things that they want to do, but it it can also, of course, help the company figure out where to source internally without having to look outside. So before we close, let's shift perspectives back from the employer to the individual. Any final messages for individuals who are looking to realize their potential for learning, for earnings, for human capital generally? Well, I would say that particularly for those who are in the early stages of their career, really viewing work experience as a way to learn new things, even if that means let's say, a short-term or a temporary perceived trade-off in terms of your salary or what feels more like a lateral move rather than an upward move. But if it's a bold move, chances are that it will set you up for higher momentum going forward. And the going forward part of the story is huge. Half of all your earnings, two-thirds of all your wealth as an individual through your lifetime will come from tapping into human capital that you possess, that you have control over for the rest of your life. So have that forward-looking mindset and explore those bold moves. The data on experience, we would not have guessed would be as profound as it is. It's why it was pulled forward and, and we led with it. And some of our earliest conversations there was this wonderful moment we were like, you know, the die doesn't have to be cast when you're 22 
or when you're 18 and that doesn't have to be, this is it. This is that you're going to tapped out. You're going to be this thing and you're never going to have any other opportunities. There was a wonderful realization that there's still a role here for human ingenuity, human motivation, the desire to reach. If you're willing to bet on you and be thoughtful about the conditions for success and where you're going to go, wow, what an outsized impact on the rest of your life. And it's not that your earnings are the rest of your life, but it's this experiences, the people you meet, the network you grow, boy, does that have an impact. And so there, I loved the idea that the kids who came from a poor family and couldn't go to school right away, or the kids who maybe were a little longer on the maturation curve, you know, before they got it together and not saying that that resonates with my own experience at all. But, you know, the idea that, you know, it may take a little while for people to get going. I think that's wonderful, right? And it, it doesn't have to be just a small set who have it nailed and, and they're, they're anointed from day one. Let's close there. Bill and Anu, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was great fun. It was great to be here. Thanks, Lucia. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.